Larry Larson has long been one of my favorite cartoonists. Anyone familiar with The Far Side? Could you just take a show of hands? You, the far it's interesting, it's a slightly older demographic here who's um, aware of The Far Side. We'll know what I'm talking about. And this is one of his most famous cartoons. Now, uh, for those watching on uh, video where we don't necessarily pan up to what's on screen or listening to the audio of this, um, let me describe what is on screen. There are two deer. It is obviously in America where gun use and hunting is quite popular. And one deer seems to have a target painted on his chest. And the other deer says, bummer of a birthmark, how? Now, the reason I'm using this as an introduction is for a far more serious reason. It's because when someone becomes a Christian, when they decide to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior, actually, this is what happens to them. It's as if a target is painted on their soul, and their life will be the object of constant attack. You see, if you want to be one of God's children, then understand this. It won't be a life of ease, but one of ongoing warfare and spiritual conflict. This is actually going to be the lesson that emerges from the next couple of chapters that we're looking at in Esther. Now, last week as we began our studies, we saw something of what a dangerous and unstable place the Persian Empire really was. Queen Vashti was divorced for acting honorably. Jewish Esther won a sex competition to succeed her. And her guardian Mordecai uncovered an assassination plot against King Xerxes. And as we pick up the story in chapter Three, we're fully expecting to see Mordecai get his reward. Just listen to verse 1 or have a look at that in your Bible because it says, after these events, King Xerxes honored, and we would be expecting the natural run to go, he honored Mordecai. But in fact, we get a totally different name. We get Haman, the Agagite. And so he's introduced another major character in the drama that's unfolding before us. Now, if this were a Western, he'd be wearing a black hat. Or if he was in pantomime, he'd be cackling behind a black coat because he's introduced to us with the title, The Agagite. And for early readers of this account, that was just another way of saying He's the baddie. Let me explain. Actually, it's a reference to King Agag. He was king of the Amalekites about 500 years previously. And that people group, the Amalekites, were the first people in the world to attack God's newly formed covenant people as they came out of Egypt. And one of the first things that Israel's first king was called upon to do was to attack and to destroy the Amalekites. And as Saul went into battle, the first king of Israel, he, he did destroy most. 
though he did temporarily spare King Agag's life, along with some of the best of the plunder. And ever since that time, to call someone an Agagite was to use a shorthand expression meaning an enemy of God's people. For example, in the first century AD, some Jewish writers referred to the occupying Roman army as Agagites. And even in our lifetime, militant Jewish activists have used the same expression to describe Arab aggressors. So in other words, Haman wasn't necessarily descended from the Amalekites, rather he is characterized before us as an enemy of God's people. And this explains why Mordecai didn't give him the respect that he'd have shown to other dignitaries in the royal court. But Mordecai's actions did have some dramatic repercussions. Just have a look at chapter 3 from verse 2. We read this, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. By the way, do you see that therefore classes Mordecai as one of the royal officials? Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it. Interesting, Haman hadn't noticed this. You, you get this with these sort of guys. You know, the, the nose is so high up, they don't see the, what, what, what's happening. But they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so in the story begins the plan to destroy God's people throughout the empire. It starts with Haman consulting with his religious flunkies to determine the best time to carry out this genocide. And we'll actually return to that later. And he then goes into the king to persuade the king to sign up to his plan. And as he does that, we're going to notice three things about Haman there. I've called them Haman, three marks of opposition. Because it's interesting to see how Haman presents his case, for the same tactics are still around today. First of all, we notice he spreads fear. Chapter 3, verse 8, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. You can see how the people are not named. And there is something sinister in being told that they are dispersed among us. They're all around. In fact, anyone familiar with sci-fi programs will know that's precisely how you try and build the tension. Blade Runner. Battlestar Galactica and the like. You, you know, it's, they're here, we're in danger, and it's all their fault. So he spreads fear. But then secondly, we notice, that, notice he uses innuendo. Verse 8, their customs are different from those of all other people. 
You see, you can hear Haman suggesting that these unnamed people wouldn't celebrate what we celebrate. They don't believe what we believe. Their value system is alien to ours. It's a threat, he implies, to the wonderful toleration and diversity that we've created. So let's destroy them. He uses innuendo, but then thirdly, we notice he employs falsehood. Last part of verse 8, and they do not obey the king's laws. Now we've moved from half-truths to downright lies, for we know that both Esther and Mordecai had played a full part in the processes of the Persian kingdom. He was a, a civil servant, one of those royal officials who, who we heard about just now. She was the queen. But when we're the targets of godless hatred, we should expect that lies will be the natural language of those who oppose the living God. See, the reality is God's people have been under attack ever since Cain killed Abel, in fact, before then. There's a hatred and opposition to God's rule that breaks out in a thousand and one ways. Although Satan's name, like that of God's, isn't mentioned in this book, the truth remains that scripture and world history are littered with the effects of his intense opposition to the people of God. Look, conservative estimates, and these are conservative estimates, suggest that about 10 born-again Christians are killed for their faith each day. Now, I say those are conservative estimates. I've taken the lowest figure. The other uh, estimates suggest figures which are about 10 times larger. I could have quoted them, but I won't. The lowest estimate is about 10 Christians a day are killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, the greatest illustration of this was the cross of Jesus Christ himself, where whipped and beaten and spat upon, the Savior was then skewered to a Roman cross and he was mercilessly mocked. In fact, less than 24 hours before, he'd said this to his disciples in John 15, verse 18. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And you see, just as the Jewish exiles, we noted this last week, had the book of Esther to give them comfort and encouragement through their trials, so actually we also have the book of Revelation, which shows that despite the power world empires hold, God is the one who is reigning. That God is working out his purposes. That God keeps his children safe, for even death itself has been defeated. But we mustn't jump ahead of the story. The threat is real. The edict is issued throughout the empire in the name of this easily manipulated king, and the date is set when it's open season against the Jews. And what you kill, you can keep. Their possessions become yours. And rather than breaking any law in doing so, you'll be doing the king 
a favor. So there's Haman, three marks of opposition. But let, let's move on to Mordecai. And with Mordecai in this story, we notice there are three marks of faith. Mordecai, three marks of faith. The first thing I notice about Mordecai is that he identifies with God's people. He identifies with God's people. Although previously he'd counseled Esther, his charge not to divulge her Jewish ancestry, we now find Mordecai doing precisely that. Have a look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. You see, it's as if Mordecai is pointing to the target at his chest. I'm one of those. I'm a Jew. I'm under sentence of death, and I'm pleading to God along with my other compatriots for help. So he identifies with God's people. But then secondly, I notice he believes God's promise. He believes God's promise. Listen to the warning he gives to Esther in verses 12 to 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Now, did you notice that? Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. See, although Mordecai was fearful that he and many others would perish... He was also convinced at the same time that God's purposes would continue, that a Messiah would arise, that God's covenant would not be broken. This isn't the end. He knew that God would work his purposes out. He didn't know how, but he believed God's promise. And then thirdly, I notice he senses God's providence. You see, there are a number of things happening here that Mordecai would no doubt have picked up on. Things that others would call coincidence, but we'll call providence. Firstly, there's the date when the edict was written, ordering the destruction of the Jews. That would have resonated with Mordecai. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 12. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out into the, in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Okay, what's the 13th day of the first month? It's Passover Eve. It's the preparation time for the Jews when the enslaved Israelites would sacrifice the Passover lamb and coat the door lintels with its blood so that the avenging angel would pass over. Well, what a co coincidence. Nothing of the sort. God was, God was at work and, and Mordecai was saying, he said, I'm reminded, I'm reminded of what happens. Deliverance comes from God. God saves. 
Uh, and secondly, when Haman, we're told, cast the lot, and, and by the way, casting the lot was really uh, just rolling a form of dice. When he was casting the lot to determine that uh, when he should slaughter the Jews, do you notice it fell to the last possible date? We're told that he cast it in the first month. Now, he could have, it could have come up the second month, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, the last month. And it came out the twelfth, the, the very last month. Some coincidence, yeah. And thirdly, Mordecai putting all of this together then wonders aloud to Esther, who has miraculously risen to be queen of Persia. He says this, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. My friends, there is no such thing as a lucky coincidence. God is always at work through a dazzling array of circumstances and situations and opportunities. Friends, we're not in the hands of blind fate. We are not controlled by circumstances. We are who we are and where we are by his sovereign grace and determination. And even if the means whereby we arrived here was not what we'd hoped or planned, still God in his grace has worked it out for our good and for his glory. Do you remember Joseph when he looked back upon his treatment by his brothers, how he was sold into slavery and then how he was imprisoned on false rape charges? Was able to reflect as he looked back upon these things, saying to the brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God was in control. Even the crucifixion itself, what we've been remembering this evening. Although it was the work of cruel and evil people, it was the fulfillment of God's glorious plan. We read this in Acts 4, verses 27 to 28, where Peter says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did, now get this, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Yes, there, there is a battle as a follower of Jesus. Yes, there is a target on your chest, but there is one far greater than all that Satan and the world and your traitorous flesh can throw at you. Mordecai, three marks of faith. But I want to conclude by looking at Esther. And as we do so, I notice there are three marks of change. Esther and three marks of change. How does Esther respond to the news of what Mordecai is doing? Well, she's been queen for five years now. And she won't have had direct contact with her guardian during this time so she's deeply upset at the news that gets back to her that Mordecai is fasting and weeping and wearing sackcloth and ashes. And so begins a three-way toing and froing, which is very revealing. The first thing we notice about this is that she shares the world's values. She begins by sharing the world's values. Verse 4. 
When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Here, Mordecai, put on some new clothes. They'll cheer you up. She doesn't even attempt to discover what it is that's troubling him. It's just that superficial way of the world. Make yourself feel better by how you look on the outside and by what you have. And of course, when you do these things, it'll make all those bothersome thoughts go away. Put on some nice clothes, Mordecai, and you'll forget these things. The latest clothes, the latest gizmos, the latest games, the latest YouTube videos, that'll make you stop thinking about your troubles. And actually, it works for a while. Like an alcoholic bender or a few lines of coke or a shopping binge, it can blot out reality for a while, but not for long. And it seems that Esther had bought into the values of her surrounding culture and was responding to Mordecai accordingly. But then there's the first glimmer of change. Upon hearing of Mordecai's refusal of her gift, Esther sends out a eunuch called Hathak to find out what was really troubling Mordecai. She actually then goes to ask him. We read this in verses 6 to 8. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Esther begins by sharing the world's values, but then secondly, we notice that she counts the personal cost. She counts the personal cost because Esther hesitates. She gives excuses. She realizes what the implications are for her to take a stand. We read this, verses 10 to 11. Then she instructed him, that is Hathak, to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. You see, what Mordecai was doing was calling her to choose between living a life of luxury and privilege as a pagan within the royal court or to identify herself for the first time as a Jewess. And that carried with it both danger as she became fair game to be killed under the king's edict, but not just danger, it brought with it shame. For it was an admission that she'd not been living as a devout Jew, as she should have done. And perhaps there are some here who can relate to this dilemma. You see, you have a decision to make. Who will you identify with? 
Perhaps you've been embedded in this culture. You've been following its values and practices. And on any other day, no one would have a clue that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But you're faced with this decision. In fact, actually, each one of us are constantly faced with many decisions as to whether we follow Christ or the world. And sadly, for many of us, we follow the path of least resistance, avoiding the call to obey God's word when it clashes with the way of the world. Of course, some of you here have never made that decision to follow Christ in the first place. This evening in this building, you're on the outside, as it were, looking in. And the call to you is to surrender completely to the one who so loved you to deal with your sin and guilt and shame and to be transformed into someone who marches to a different beat with a higher purpose and with a glorious hope and someone who could be used for ends which are bigger than their own. So we, we see with Esther, she counts the personal cost. But then thirdly, I notice she shows the godly response. She shows the godly response. We see this in verses 12 to 17. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. See, the tables have been turned. No longer is Mordecai instructing Esther. She's taken the initiative and he's responding to her. Her transformation actually has been remarkable. From a passive woman acquiescing in her culture to a godly woman ready to lay down her life so that God's promises might be fulfilled. Now, let me say two things as I close. Firstly, you're very, very unlikely to be in a position where you will face death as you mediate for the life of God's people. But this does point forward to the one who would. See, our lives were in danger of eternal destruction, but Jesus Christ gave his life to rescue us. He is the role model who is pointed to here. It isn't Esther. He is the one who sacrificed himself so that we might be delivered from hell's just penalty. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. But secondly... Each of us will come to situations that will define us. Times when decisions have to be made. For example, you have your expense forms in front of you. 
and you have a decision. Are you going to embellish those figures? Are you going to cheat on your expense forms? Or when it comes to exams that you're sitting and there's, what are you going to do? Are you going to just cheat a little and bend the rules a little and do some copy and paste a little? Or maybe there's the temptation to cheat on your spouse. There's a relationship that's developing at work and you notice that uh, someone else is flirting with you in the workplace and, and you're going, well, what shall I do? This is uh, really uh, great. I like this. Are you going to follow that through? Or are you going to live a godly life? And it's how you respond to these moments and these opportunities of which there may be very many that will shape the person that you are. These decisions are happening regularly in your life. You are constantly making decisions, whether to go the world's way or whether to go God's way. And there's a cumulative effect over a period of time. Or it may be that now you've come to a particular moment in your life now. You don't necessarily know how you got here to this point. Perhaps even through poor decisions you made along the way. It may even be that you've been concealing your standing as a Christian, but you've come to a crisis moment and there's a decision to be made. Let Karen Jobes, who's written a wonderful commentary on Esther, have the last word. She wrote this, regardless of the straits you find yourself in, turn to the Lord. Rend your heart, not your garment. Fast, weep and mourn and return to the Lord your God. His purposes are greater than yours. And who knows? Perhaps you have come to your present situation for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, we do find that so often we are faced with decisions that we have to make. So often we are conscious how we are countercultural. We're running against the way of the world. And it hurts and it's difficult. And we find so often the easiest thing is to just go the way of least resistance. And we're like Esther, early Esther in that regard. But Father, you call us to something greater and higher. You call us to live for you, to march to your drumbeat, to live for a higher cause and a higher calling. So, Father, would you help us to be the men and women that we ought to be? To follow hard after you when these decisions come, Lord, to go your way, not our way. And, Father, we've probably screwed up in so many different ways, but we are so grateful that if you could use a woman like Esther and turn her life around and transform her life, so that she is willing sacrificially to lay down her life for your purposes. Father, take broken, messed up people like us and enable us from this point on 
to live to the glory of King Jesus, in whose name we ask these things.